Hi, and welcome to my podcast series, The New Abnormal, which aims to make sense of our COVID-19 world today and tomorrow. I'm Sean P. Lodishenesi, researcher, author, and speaker from Brand Positive. As a researcher, I've spent 20 years conducting ethnographic interviews on global projects. Along the way, I've been lucky enough to have met some amazing people, from psychologists to activists to creatives, some of whom I'll be talking to in this series. I'm also the author of The Post-Truth Business, which focused on trust, empathy and privacy, while my second book, Influences and Revolutionaries, looked into innovation, behavioural change and the climate crisis. So, I hope you enjoy the interviews, and if so, please tell your friends, leave a rating and watch out for our other episodes. Now, without further delay, let's crack on with today's podcast. So today, I'm really pleased to be joined by such an interesting individual. Uh, Nicole Full is an associate fellow at the Institute on Asian Con- Consumer Insight. She is also the CEO of the Strategic Research Innovation Consultancy and Trend Forecasting Agency, Asian Consumer Intelligence. And it's via that that I actually first met Nicole uh, many years ago when I was running around Tokyo um, doing focus groups uh, and ethnographic research. I mean, she's been um, in that part of the world for a long time, Has uh, is absolutely renowned and has a stellar reputation. Um, so she's got 19 years experience uh, of working across Asia, particularly in China, Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore, and Malaysia. Um, and she specialised in NPD, uh, brand refreshment, and then repositioning research and strategy. Now, at the moment, I understand that although she's based in Singapore, she's actually in Malaysia. So, uh, Nicole, welcome. And uh, how are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. All things considered. How's it going with you? Uh, fine. And actually, it's a very sunny morning in Brighton uh, by the sea. Very nice indeed. Um, and so, actually, Nicole, just to kick off somewhere. So, um, in terms of literally physically where you are and what's outside your window, perhaps uh, talk us through that. Okay, well, it looks like it's about to be a really big storm here. So the sky is as grey as you can imagine. Um, Thunder might start. There'll be probably the most amazing lightning storm. We can see jungle in the distance, but most immediately uh, we have a swimming pool which is out of use because currently um, the restrictions uh, forbid us from using the pool and the outdoor gym. So it's nice to look at. Sadly, can't use it. Wow. Unbelievable. And you mentioned that you were in um, in Malaysia um, earlier this year and basically you were held there in terms of um, the, the lockdown coming in at fairly short notice. That's right. So my kids actually go to school um, at a British school in Malaysia in Johor, which is just over the border from Singapore. And um, we're leading quite a complicated life, live sort of during the week in Singapore, run the business from there, and then come over to Johor, which is literally just over the border by road um, at weekends and holidays. And um, well, what happened was there was a suspected case of a coronavirus at the school. The school closed for a few days to cleanse the school and to make sure everyone was okay. Um, And then on the Wednesday, this has happened on the Monday and the Tuesday, so I'd stayed in uh, Malaysia. Um, On the Wednesday, they announced the... um, uh, the MCO, the um, the closure of the country, basically, and 
I couldn't go back because, you know, the kids weren't back at school. And um, and so, yeah, so I just decided to stay here. My husband's in Singapore working. So effectively, they closed the borders. We, as a foreigner, we're allowed to leave, but um, no one's allowed back into Malaysia. And, you know, I've got kids here and um, helper pets, a house and so on. So it really wasn't a case of, right, quick, get out, because we couldn't. So it's been interesting to be based here um, while this is going on. And obviously, um, you know, prior to that, with um, coronavirus, you know, obviously this has been in the region, obviously, um, since mm. the beginning of the year. So um, to see kind of the impact on it in Singapore, how everything was going okay there, and then um, then suddenly it wasn't. So it's been uh, an interesting seven weeks, like it has globally, I guess. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, actually, just mentioned that um, I spent quite a lot of my childhood uh, over there. And when we were living in Singapore when I was very small, and then um, uh, just so you know, the family had an epic car journey when we drove from uh, Singapore up to the Penang Straits, where we then lived for a while, um, for a couple of years uh, in a car, three kids, my parents, and five cats. Uh, so uh, there we are. That was a, an epic. <laughs> went on to Hong Kong. Um, but um, so just tell me about... Um, I mean, your story, because I think, I mean, remember when we first met, it's so interesting. You've been out in that part of the world um, for a long, long time. And obviously now it is, always has been a fascinating area, but is now so forward looking and dynamic. So perhaps just, yeah, tell us your story of when you uh, left the UK, headed over there and then, um, you know, set up your business, etc. Yep. So, uh, so I've been in Asia now um, for 23, 24 years, which is actually, um, it's mad to say I've actually been in Asia longer than I was in the UK. So, um, so that's a bit bizarre to think of. And maybe that means I should probably head back or at least um, leave it at some point soon. But um, I've been, you know, I started off in Hong Kong, went to mainland China, went to Japan, and then headed to Singapore. And then um, the last sort of five years, uh, split my time between Singapore and Malaysia, as I explained. And um, I came out as a, as a journalist and then moved into um, kind of went into sort of trend spotting for a fashion, uh, you know, online service. And it literally was just trend spotting, putting together stories for retail and for um, fashion, moved into advertising where it was more about um identifying you know consumer insights and and kind of that's when we started to shift or you know my knowledge or expertise shifted a little bit more into cpg and Mm -hmm. um, and then from there realized that there was an opportunity to set up an independent agency uh, that focused on forecasting and and research in um uh, you know mainly with uh, cpg but across you know across a range of categories but also just focused really on trying to uncover um, at that point, it just felt that there wasn't a lot of information um, on the consumer um, in Asia. And how could we uncover that, providing context from a Western perspective, um, as well as, you know, a true perspective from the Asian side as well. So that's how the um, agency came about. Came about, And then weirdly along the route, um, you know, Japan being the kind of place it is, it's one of those, I mean... I would say that it's polarizing, but for most people, 99% of people who, who go to Japan, they absolutely love it. It's one of the most amazing places on the planet in terms of experiences, unique culture. Um, but we always felt that its story wasn't being well communicated to visitors. And at that point, there wasn't actually a lot of visitors. So weirdly, among this kind of setting up the agency, you know, working with companies like Unilever, we decided, and that was my then business partner, we decided to um, actually set up a bit of a travel um, 
you know, business um, at the time. And, uh, and so we kind of got, found ourselves into, you know, found ourselves running this sort of luxury travel experience business, which was, quite, yeah, sort of a bit weird, really, because it kind of wasn't my focus. But, you know, I guess in the end, at the end of it, it was all really about trying to um, uncover an insight. And that insight was, well, how do you give, you know, provide a great experience? Um, just the audience was a bit different. And uh, so, yeah, that's how the agency started, really. Fantastic. I do remember a couple of years ago on a on a different tack, and I think linking to that point you made about um, a lot of the misunderstandings that come out of certainly the US and, and Europe, um, and I'll still luckily include the UK in that at the moment. Let's not talk about Brexit. Um, but um, the issue of a, a real misunderstanding of what is happening um, uh, over there when I think just as a lot of Americans would just assume that all all Europeans are the same. I think we often you hear exactly the same thing in agency boardrooms, and I've heard it for years. In terms of, you know, bluntly put, the Asian market is all basically the same. Um, hence, the need for people like yourself to actually um, stop that conversation there and uh, and clarify what's going on. Right. I mean, I think you know, obviously, a lot of the work that we do is about um, decoding um, consumer insight, and we, you know, we work with big companies like Google, for example. I mean, we use their data, um, and we work with them collaboratively. To uh, you know, they provide the data, they provide that real hard stuff, and we're there, you know, running expert interviews, trying to um, understand what something might mean. So obviously, you know, most of the time, data is always looking at what's happening right now. Um, you know, a search trend is what's right now, but really, it's how to interpret that and understand what might be. And uh, and until recently, and and possibly in the future, you know, um, Asia was sort of you know fueling the world's growth. So it become you know the place where every um, international business was you know suddenly very vested, um, and uh, and you know we'd actually um, you know kind of more focused on what we do. Um, in terms of really trying to sort of work with companies in better understanding, you know, flavors, for example, or um, fragrances or food or um, new product development. But I, you know, apart from CPG, we'd actually started working a lot more with tech companies too. Um, and mm. really uh, with businesses that care about the future. Um, Cause there's awful lot of businesses out there um, that don't. And, um, and it's quite surprising really. Hmm. I think it's also really interesting that point that um, I mean, certainly you know, for, for a long, long time there was a just a generally held, I think, sort of you know, a view over here that um, right, you know, the future was Asia, and the future certainly was you know, something like Tokyo. And I remember in, in my first book in the Post Truth Business, and I was talking to you about that, and I'm looking at the quote now actually, and you said when you're in a city like Singapore um, or Tokyo, it's very easy to, to believe you, that you think you're in one of the most developed places on the planet and you can see how technology is enabling everyday life. But it's something it's somewhere like Shanghai that I actually feel where you know, the rest of the world seems so far behind. Is that still the same now? I mean, that you mentioned that that was a couple of years ago for that book. But um, you know, where you, when you look around you now, where is, uh, you know, where is the city that's really leading it? I think you're absolutely right. I think it's uh, Shanghai. Um, I mean, obviously, it, it comes down to the category or to the sector. But, you know, retail, for example, or how we sell nowadays really is just led um, by live streaming. Um, and that's really come out of, um, you know, China. And 
I mean, you know, earlier this, when the coronavirus hit, and and it could even be seven weeks ago, um, or it could be, you know, 10 years ago at this point, it really is starting to, uh, it it just feels like a very long um, journey at this point. But, you know, we had taken um, a leading, well-known high street brand in the UK, um, think Pile them high, sell them cheap type brands that everyone yeah. loves, and um, and we'd taken them out for a, um, a market immersion in Shanghai, and this was actually in late November, early December, and uh, and really to kind of connect them on best practice retail, um, show them what international brands were doing and how they'd you know adapted that for the local markets, but also um, show them you know unique. Chinese models as well and and you know for example everyone knows how amazing um the Starbucks reserve store is for example in Shanghai and how it you know melds AR and uh you know with real life and so on so it was really just about that and getting them up to speed um when coronavirus really hit the UK you know we received an email off that same retailer saying um mm, any advice and I said well clearly obviously you know I hope your e-com game is uh, is pretty strong and they're like um we don't have one so that in itself is just, you know, mind blowing, really, that um, a, a huge retailer in the UK doesn't have an online presence. And then on top of that, not only does it not have an online presence, but it doesn't even really have the ability to live stream products. So they're not even just mm. one step behind now. It's kind of like two, three, four steps. You know, it's light years, you know, they're light years ahead in China. Yeah, yeah. By the way, you mentioned the thing about the um, the, the Starbucks uh, store with uh, all the AI um, uh, sort of tech being used in, um, there. Just perhaps just talk us through that for those who um, don't know about it. Yeah, so um, it's, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's part of the new re- new retail push. And so obviously it's that sort of idea that, uh, and I, I better quickly say that, you know, we're, we're now in this uh, BC sort of AC world, aren't we? We're, we, you know, before mm. coronavirus, after coronavirus. So, you know, back in this BC world, everyone was really focused on that idea about experience and, um, and how do we deliver that? And um, and so from a retail perspective, it was about, you know, um, being in the store, um, seeing the journey of where, you know, the coffee um, is being um, roasted, ground, um, packed up, put into a, um, you know, into a coffee product. But on top of that, being able to kind of hold your phone up and, and fully understand the journey um, with, you know, the information you're receiving um, through, a, you know, AR. So it was just that sort of, you know, uh, futuristic style store experience that we were shifting towards and that every brand was really trying to kind of get on board with, you know, um, and how do we improve our experience and, and customer journey? So that was sort of at that point, it seemed like the future of retail um, and uh, and across experiences across the board. I mean, you know, hotels didn't want to be hotels anymore. They wanted to be, you know, experience centers and, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of that's uh, an example of what perhaps that Starbucks store would look like. It's really just about, you know, differentiating your product um, and uh, and delivering, a, a, you know, an added value on top, which is less tangible. Mm. But in terms of that, the, the point you're also making about the sort of, you know, BCAC, you know, before COVID, after COVID world, you know, one of the really strong narratives that's been building, certainly in the, uh, let's say, in, in the marketing press um, over here, both in, in sort of, you know, Central and Western Europe and, and the US is, um, you know, a situation that, you know, um, it's either, you know, it's a real sort of a story of polarity. It's either, you know, effectively, there's no real change. This is in effect, just another recession. Uh, on the other side, it's it 
it's all change. So on that, um, you mentioned that you know the BCAC thing. So on that line, um, I mean, first of all, is that um, a debate that's happening where you are? You know, either no change or all change. And if so, where are you on that scale? So, so how you know what is the narrative really? Right. I mean, you know, um, look, what has happened um, were is you know there is no doubt that it has had an impact and will continue to have an impact over the next few years. Um, I think that debate kind of stems from you know a couple of marketing professors or people just trying to get a few LinkedIn likes. Um, by saying that, you know, people, um, you know, uh, people go back to normal after everything. Well, they won't because, you know, we have uh, something like 800,000 um, students in the UK alone um, who are graduating this year, either they're, you know, just come out of uh, their GCSEs or they're just coming out of their degree degrees who can't get a job. Um, and the kind of jobs that they would have got, you know, working in cafes, bars, um, you know, that sort of, you know, cheap freelance economy in retail stores are now lo- no longer available. So, you know, you have a young person who has um, just spent years in education, come out thinking they're about to uh, enter this amazing, new, exciting world, and instead has been in lockdown for the last few months um, and has got no job prospects. So, yeah, everything's changed. And attitudinally, you know, it's really key to understand that going forward, going forward, you'll have a consumer um, who is, you know, doesn't have the means to purchase the things that were available everywhere, can't go into even the pile them high, you know, sell them cheap stores, because even that will seem like a luxury in the future. And, um, you know, uh, and on top of that, you know, we've got their parents are probably struggling a bit as well with, you know, either they've been furloughed or, you know, um, not been able to, you know, pay their mortgages. So suddenly, you know, Bank of Mum and Dad is is not um, as present as it once was. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, everything will change. I mean, I, you know, from, so I've got an interesting benchmark in the fact that Malaysia has had one of the um, strictest lockdowns um, on the planet. Uh, which is phenomenal, really. I mean, they've uh, they didn't just flatten the curve. You know, they they brought it back down to sort of you know single digits, and um, and what they've mm. done, um, you know, everything was pretty much banned. Only the head of the household could leave um, the house to go shopping as minimally as possible. Everything was shut down apart from grocery stores and drug stores. So it was a full lockdown. You um, so you pretty much had to carry your papers um, if you wanted to go outside. Only one person from the house was allowed allowed outside, and that was the head of the household. Um, on top of that, wow. you were only allowed to go as far as um, the rules were as ten kilometres from your house. That was to kind of take into account, you know, if you lived in a slightly rural area and you might not have a shop near you. So you know, mm. there were military. Uh, there was a military presence everywhere to get to my supermarket. You know, I had to go through a, a full on, you know, roadblock with soldiers in the street, um, you know, with very scary looking guns. And that's just to go and get some pasta. So, wow. yeah, yeah, it was full on, but it worked. Um, now, on fr- fr- you know, a couple of days ago, last Friday, so just to kind of put this into context, um, just under a week ago, very unexpectedly, they said, right, from Monday, we're going to lift some measures. Um, and everyone was kind of scrambling, going, 
my goodness, that's very short notice. And so what they said was on Monday is that people, you know, a couple more stores could open, you know, so some retail stores uh, selling, you know, clothes could open. Um, and um, and so, lo- so long as people were following very strict procedures, then they um, could eat in, to eat in at restaurants, um, but only, you know, with very, very strict procedures. So I think a lot of restaurants cannot even think about doing it. So we had this very strict um, you know, lockdown. And then Monday, it was kind of partially lifted. Um, I have a teenage daughter who was just desperate to kind of look around the shops. Um, yeah. so, so I took her out for a big treat. I mean, you know, she uh, put on her best clothes. <laughs> she was <laughs> doled herself up to go to the, you know, like the local shopping center, just out of sheer excitement about being out of the house. And um and, you know, it, it was a strange phenomenon because, you know, it obviously it was completely empty. No one's really prepared to go back out shopping. They don't feel safe. Um, you know, the stores were dusty and you kind of knew that everything was just about to go on massive sale soon. And so you have this kind of, you know, before and after feeling and um, and it does, it feels different. But I kind of understand, you know, and sorry, long story short, to understand that, yeah, yeah I was back in a mall. This was something I did six weeks ago. But did it feel like I really wanted to shop? No. You know, did my teenage daughter who had the ability to shop? No, she was like, oh, this is not so great after all. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. <laughs> Another thing that um, I really like to talk about is the subject of uh, privacy, because that was one of the core points I spoke about in my first bit of the post-truth business when we were looking at um, the impact of, um, you know, uh, uh, surveillance um, culture, the issues of you know surveillance capitalism, how uh, that the tech brands were making ever sort of greater inroads into our sort of you know private lives, and I think one of the really interesting things that you and I spoke about then was there was a real. Um, a very clear divide. It's also something that um, people like the Copenhagen Institute of, of Features, who I've interviewed many times, spoken about a real, really clear Western Eastern um, perspective, which is has always been effectively, um, if you're uh, the narrative goes, if you're a sort of a US or a European um, citizen, then you hold your privacy to be something that is incredibly important on a sort of psychological level. Um, um, where the where the individual is more important than the state, whereas you have that Asian model, bluntly put, whereby it's the other way around, and actually there's very little privacy, uh, and so therefore people don't have a problem with things like tracking technology. Now, in terms of where we are now with obviously COVID, and increasingly over here we're seeing things like health services and governments, you know, um, needing people to use tracking technology in order to track outbreaks, etc. There's quite a lot of an outcry. Of what does this mean for privacy? Where does it? Where does that debate stand again with you? Where you are now? Uh, I mean, um, is the privacy thing um, as big a deal as um, it is over here, or is it as it was when we last spoke? When actually, there's a very different take on it. No, I mean, you know, people in this part of the world um, will trade data privacy um, for convenience, and. You know, if um, having social media or, you know, the messaging apps or or anything um, that just enables um, a more efficient life, people will trade their privacy for the what they see um, are benefits. And that hasn't changed. And I really don't see it changing in the foreseeable future. I mean, in fact, you know, if we kind of look at how 
the countries who are coming through this best um, in the world. And, you know, we know that Korea has done an amazing job. Taiwan, phenomenal as well. Singapore initially, until um, you know the migrant worker issue came up, um, was doing a brilliant job. Mm-hmm. And um, and obviously that's down to um, contact tracing, and that will be yeah. the solution going forward in how to manage what you know people experts, unlike myself, and experts in this field are saying are going to be you know um, de facto for the next few years. So you know from that regard. People just want a solution to this. So, you know, when it comes to contact tracing, um, people are willing to, uh, you know, give their information or sign up for these services because they know that, you know, um, technology will enable um, a solution to all this. So, you know, there is a sense in this part of the world, and and it's not even a a debate half the time. You know, people want um, efficiency, they want convenience and, uh, and generally at any cost, generally, generally. Mm-hmm. And then what about the issues uh, around um, in terms of you mentioned you're on about, you know, so you've got a situation whereby people are coming out of college now and they're having a real, real problem facing them in terms of what are they going to do in terms of work and, and the future of work? I mean, how do you know what are the big sort of um subjects over there because it seemed that you know certainly when i mean i just put out uh, my latest book um influences and revolutionaries in terms of the the uh the future of work piece in that a lot of the talk was around you know the big drivers were in things like sort of diversity and inclusion and, and all the rest of it um um generational issues in terms of multi-generational teams and you know workplaces having to be uh, emotionally empowering all the rest of it where is the future of work going now, do you think, where you are in terms of what are the, you know, what are the key drivers that are going to be um, giving us the, the future workforce and the future workplace? Yeah, this is a really tricky one because so we so we just did this uh, recent report with Google and and you mentioned, you know, diversity and inclusivity. And, mm. uh, and and contrary to what you'd expect, you know, so-called Western advanced nations versus slightly behind Asian uh, cultures, um, what we found is that people in Asia and, and you know, in places particularly in um, China as well, was that diversity and inclusion, uh, DNI, is incredibly important to people here. You know, there is a sense of fairness and equality, and people do generally care. And um, and and it might, you know, I mean, it's just obviously the right thing to do morally, but, you know, when has that got anything to do with things? But, you know, there, in that idea of um, individualistic versus collectivist, or collectivist societies, you know, it's always this cliche to talk about Asia being collectivist, um, but it does drive some of the behaviours, and um, and you know, for example, with the you know the contact tracing and, and so on and so forth. You know, if everyone else is doing it, um, then you know what I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to do it too. So that's the sort mm. of um, idea. So when it comes back to the future of work. You know, when I look at sort of how, you know, this is uh, in Asia, particularly, you know, Southeast Asia, um, a lot of um, the economy comes from what's known as SMEs, um, small mm. 
medium enterprises and you know it's, it's some parts of Asia I mean it's literally sort of 80 to 99 percent or something um, is driven by SMEs and generally speaking these you know small enterprises tend to be you know family or group concerns you know you've got um, you know a, a number of relatives who will um, you know open up a restaurant or open up a store um, the the seeding the money for it will come from a family member which in this regard is slightly worrying, you know, if all these stores have been closed, you know, it's going to impact people financially because it's going to impact more people rather than just, say, a bank. Um, mm. But bigger picture, you know, there is a sense that um, people are just attuned to um, getting on with things and setting up businesses and being entrepreneurial in this part of the world. So, you know, I think I read... Um, it was obviously, a, you know, it was a huge headline in the last few days that something like 50% of the British population um, is now being funded by the state. And mm. um, and there's kind of discussions in, you know, in India and other parts of Asia, you know, why um, the governments aren't able to help as much. I mean, apart from the fact that economies aren't as large, there just isn't mm. a sense that um, the government will help. So with regards to, you know, future of work, you know, people here are just sort of, well, you know, we've not really been looked after in the past. Um, we're not going to be looked after in the future. It's just time to kind of dig deep and, and get on with it, really. So, you mm. know, and, and with those bigger values uh, that people still care about, you know, they will uh, still come into play. So, you know, the future is probably not too different to what it looks like right now. Um, I don't think it's going to be too dramatically different once once things get back to, uh, uh, you know, some semblance of how they were, maybe not attitudinally though. Mm, yeah, yeah. And in terms of uh, the, so you mentioned the, the attitude um, from the point of view of businesses and citizens um, looking to governments that may or not be, be assisting them. What about the brand role here? Because we've certainly seen Again, you know, where I am in the UK, a lot of activity from brands uh, effectively, if you like, standing up to be counted. So, you know, um, basically backing away from advertising and using uh, those budgets to do things for the common good. Um, companies um, uh, either doing something as blunt as just either as funding or giving products or indeed on, on occasion retooling factories to create products often in collaboration with competitors for the public good. Has there been much of that sort of activity um, where you are as you look around you uh, across the region in terms of uh, brands um, doing things that are supportive in nature of, of society? I haven't seen it so much on a brand level, um, but I've seen it more on an individual or entrepreneurial level. So, for example, um, you know, I'm a, a member of a private members club in in Singapore and it's kind of, you know, it's skewed towards um, sort of, you know, young, smart Singaporeans who, um, who are a bit sort of tech friendly and a lot of them have, you know, set up. Um, you know, new sites and tools to reach out to businesses um, to, you know, get their products online or to um, provide a helping hand to migrant workers who can't work but, you know, need to feed themselves. So I think we've seen that more on an individual level. I mean, that's probably one of the, the you know, uh, best things that we've actually seen from this entire crisis is actually how um, some brands have responded. Um, it's just less noticeable in this part of the world i think mm, mm, okay I think, and then oh sorry but, to interrupt, but yeah i saw um so i had a chat with the ceo coo of food panda 
um, earlier. Um, and uh, a food panda is that is that in the UK or have you heard of that? Uh, no, so please uh, enlighten us. <laughs> okay, so so food panda is um, you know it's a food delivery business. And um, and I actually asked him a question. You know, I said, you know, COVID nineteen is being called the ultimate disruptor, and and how has Food Panda adapted to this? You know, a rapidly changing situation. And um, I think they're in about thirteen countries, mostly in Asia. So everywhere from Pakistan through to down to Malaysia and Singapore. And um, and it was really interesting listening to him because obviously. Those businesses are the ones that have really had to, uh, well, have done well or responded or had to pivot somewhat as well during um, what's happened. And he said to me that within um, something like three months, 15,000 new restaurants um, have joined the Food Panda platform. Um, which is a phenomenal amount of, you know, um, food service outlets. But on top of that, you know, they had to, um, you know, in some markets, um, it was complete lockdown, like, you know, being able to go to the supermarket once a week feels like a luxury compared to some where they were like, you're not going out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, those delivery um, services also had to start delivering groceries as well. So they've had to kind of massively pivot from, you know, um, just sort of doing, you know, your regular uh, fast food to, um, you know, literally being becoming um essential services so Mm. so i mean from that perspective um you know we've i think it's been quite you know fascinating to see how the brands that can do something have been really able to step up um there's always going to be the brands that don't necessarily uh provide much value but overall you know in asia it's uh it's it's sort of you know, a less loud approach. There's less of the sort of, oh, we're in it with you um, type ads that obviously are so present in the West. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. And, and actually and on that, I mean, one of the, um, I mean, certainly one of the, the, the two big, big sort of subjects that I, that I covered off in, in, in my latest book um, uh, was the issue around um, climate crisis um, and the ecological emergency, etc. Now, this is something that you and I spoke about again, three years ago from the previous book. And I thought it was really interesting then when we were talking about you know, the role that brands can play or the roles that organizations and innovators can play when it comes to looking at all things, to put it as everything under the title sustainability. And at that point, again, I'm going to quote the, 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 uh, the quote you gave me, you know, again, three years ago when you, you're saying, um, when you're looking at this whole issue, you said, um, as far as most places in Asia are concerned, Technology enables. Technology is the solution. Technology will provide the way forward. For instance, when looking for solutions to the environmental issues, we're seeing there have to be solutions in technology. Um, is that still a situation, uh, do you think, in terms of um, as we look to issues around the climate crisis um, and ecological emergency, is tech the way forward? And, and are, are there any, if so, are there any Asian organizations or brands that have been notable by their uh, their viewpoints on, um, you know, um, all things in, from, from the point of being uh, regenerative, um, etc. So I think, so from a tech perspective, um, I think my quote still stands. And I think mm-hmm. businesses in this part of the world, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's digital or die, really. So that mm. is the attitude. Um, and that's how it will be, you know, even more so going forward. So I had a slightly strange experience in the fact that when um, the virus really started to take hold and obviously, you know, the lockdowns happened, um, I just, uh, I was, you know, about a couple of weeks into an innovation project with a 
um, well-known Japanese tech brand, and uh, and they uh, and and you know and all of a sudden, sort of you know the the kind of innovation project that we would have been doing, which was you know very sort of tactile and and lots of workshops and and so on and so forth, suddenly became quite remote in its um, approach. But what was very cool was that. Um, what a part of the project is, is really understanding, you know, some of their business models and understanding what could be leveraged in the future. And all of a sudden, you know, and uh, and I'm, you know, completely guilty of this as a, as a consultant where we're always kind of throwing stuff at our clients by sort of saying, oh, you're not, you know, you're not disruptive enough or, you know, you need to think differently and, and whatnot. And then all of a sudden we're in this position where, the actual subject matter was focused on India and Africa. And uh, and all of a sudden, you know, we're in this uh, environment where uh, for the first time we could actually sort of, you know, vaguely empathize what it was like to online learn. Because we're always sort of saying, oh, you know, so what you live in a remote village mm. in Africa, just get online and learn. And all of a sudden we all, you know, we were all online learning. You know, I've got kids who uh, were trying to, attempt to online learn and and we were all trying to do our jobs online for the first time and we realized it's just not as simple as that is it i mean you have Mm. to kind of have you know um a stable uh connection you have to have this kind of seamless experience where um the notes from the lesson through to the actual part where they teach through to how you submit your homework is all you know frictionless um Mm. and makes sense and we realized that none of it actually did and it all was completely broken and then let alone thinking about areas like telemedicine and and drones and and all these kind of amazing they're the future all of a sudden you know we saw drones um on on tv sort of you know policing people for not wearing masks and and delivering medicine and and all of a sudden you know drone corridors uh becoming legal overnight and and being enhanced and um and so you know from that regard it's sort of um, the you know coronavirus has just been this amazing sort of disruptor, and I and I and I say amazing in in you know in, a, in the true sense of the word. It's just been absolutely uh, you know phenomenal in terms of what it's caused in terms of damage and suffering um, as well. But it has also enabled businesses to sort of realise that you know unless they innovate or unless they kind of get a sense of where things are going um, they won't survive and and this lockdown has kind of proved that so it's sort of um, what you know what uh, my kind of main point of that sort of ramble is is that Mm. you know we uh, we went into it sort of going oh yeah we really understand that tech is the future and all of a sudden tech became the enabler for everything I mean you know we had to online order our groceries we had to you know um, we had to connect with people when we're inside our homes alone. So, you know, it's uh, it's been interesting just how powerful and important tech has become. Mm. And then also one of the, the, the points you made in there, um, along with, I know, that extraordinary image of uh, people being policed by drones from the point of view of uh, mask wearing. Um, one of the points you mentioned there about some, some stuff being broken, and that is, um, and things needing to be resilient. Um, I think it's really interesting there's so much debate now around uh, a lot of people talking about this being a the sort of the greatest psychological experiment the world's ever been through and that we need to take this time to just stop um in which in many cases obviously we're being forced to do but to sort of mentally pause and take stock of where we are and how 
when things get going again in whichever format they get going at, and at whatever speed or whichever stages that that get going goes through a lot of people saying we just don't want to go back in, to where we were anyway even if we were able to do so and a lot of people have looked around them and thought actually you know what along with all the misery a lot of this has actually been very very positive and we've learned a lot i just wondered how, how if that feeling is a feeling that's around you as well in terms of bluntly put a lot of capitalism just wasn't working and a lot of things needed to be changed and we're being evidenced quite a lot um, um, now about there are some things we want to hang on to in terms of um, things being as they are everyone in lockdown um, reconnecting with um, you know society culture community nature etc right I mean I think through adversity comes creativity and, mm. uh, and through the, throughout this whole period, um, I think I've seen more kind of witty, clever, you know, biting commentary, insightful analysis in the space of two months um, on, you know, Twitter and TikTok and whatnot than I've seen over about five years. Um, mm. and, um, and, you know, kind of everyone from, you know, that comedian, that funny woman, in, uh, Sarah Cooper in the US who parodied um, Trump. Um, you know, doing the, the lip syncing, you know, through to uh, the TikToks where people have picked up their um, planners for the year and said, I won't be needing that. You know, everything obviously looked funny mm. if you watched it uh, than me retelling it. But obviously, you know, um, this adversity has just, you know, created a lot more um, creativity. I mean, I think what's really interesting is that, you know, um, for example, celebrities have really not come off well, have they? They do really seem quite <laughs> nowadays. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not so naive to think that, you know, um, everyone, you know, has a, a, sort of been this whole democratic leveler because those who were struggling before are really now um, in, a, in a terrible place. Um, or, you know, people with a garden, um, you know, are able to sort of tell on their neighbours for, for walking outside, you know. So there's mm. definitely, um, you know, been good parts to this. And from putting it back into the business um, context, you know, I just really hope that, um, you know, the, some of the kind of the, the amazing acts which have come through or the amazing, you know, whether, where it's the, whether it's insightful content or if, whether it's uh, just new opinions which have come about when people realizing that, you know, we're all uh, involved in this arms race of accumulating goodness knows what. And it really was all for now if you can't put makeup on because you're not going anywhere and there's no point in putting clothes on if you're just staying indoors all day. Um, but that's for the luxury of those who even were able to do that in the first place. So I'd like to think that, um, you know, people will look back and go, yeah, maybe I don't need to buy, um, you know, 10 pieces of clothes just because I can afford it or, um, you know, I, I, I need to just, con you know, continue on this path. I'd like to think so. But I think one of my main concerns really is that, you know, um, in our sort of desire to rebuild the world, um, the environment might actually be one of the uh, losers in all this because, you know, at this point, people are like, well, we'll just, you know, whatever it costs to get people back into jobs. So that's actually my main worry. Mm, yeah, and, and there's, there's been quite an astonishing amount of uh, commentary about precisely that, and I couldn't agree more, unfortunately. Um, what about um, a... A different take on this and that is the issue of trust uh, and trust from the point of view not so much of brands but trust towards governments because again there's been quite a lot of commentary that has suggested that trust has been moving away from where it was where trust seemed to be until let's say a few months ago about the trust in uh, 
friends and family and community and in and from a branding sense smaller brands that had a sort of you know high level of sort of a of connection um, to them whereas now um trust is moving back towards governments that we're doing we're doing what we're told to do because we trust them. Another angle on that could be we're doing what we're doing just because we can see that people have been dying. So quite frankly, you know, it's not so much we're trusting governments. We're just saying, you know, um, um, or trusting individual politicians. We're just taking this action because we just know it's the only way of basically staying alive. So I just wondered, again, how things are playing around in your part of the world in terms of, you know, trust between the individual, the citizen and the state. The relationship towards the state, I think, generally speaking, um, is a little bit different in this part of the world. I mean, there's no room for uh, misinterpretation around the rules. You know, uh, you know, referencing what I said earlier with Malaysia, the rules were very strict. You could not do, it was pretty much you can't do anything apart from three things. And and that was how it was framed. And um Whereas in the UK, I think there, were, there was a bit of a, a wishy-washy approach at the beginning where, and of course, there was no playbook, I mean, to this at all. No one had a playbook. No one really understand what, you know, what they had to do and, and what things needed to be adhered to in order to get through this, um, mm. you know, in any form of, you know, uh, semblance of, of normality. But um, the reality is, is that here, you know, governments do tend to be a little bit more authoritarian and uh, and people will listen. And when you have soldiers in the street with, you know, big old machine guns, then people do tend to listen a bit more. <laughs> it's a great level. Yeah. It really is. So when um, in that context, you know, um, people look towards good leadership and quite frankly, you know, in the absence of maybe good leadership, then they're just looking at someone who see, appears to know what they're doing. And mm. when we look at some of the world leaders, you know, and I don't think we're able to kind of uh, do a post-mortem on this yet. It's still ongoing. And I, I don't think, you know, we'll really understand, um, you know, the true picture and nature of it all until mm. maybe a year or two from now. But um, it, it, it doesn't really look like the UK did that well in terms of its citizen response and nor its leadership, really. So, no. you know, and it's weird how so-called developing countries um, have have put some of that to shame, really. You know, it's, it's oh, odd. Yeah, but absolutely. I think it's really interesting that point about you know so called you know inverted commas developing countries. That, that great book put out last year um, or a year or so ago by Hans Rosling, um, Factfulness, when he just laid out the point of how the world is now in terms of. GDP, um, uh, lifestyle issues, uh, uh, access to education, etc. And it just is amazing. He, he was making that point how many times you hear in public conversations or indeed in boardrooms in the West when there's this very, very um, arrogant viewpoint of, you know, first world, third world, which is just not the reality when you travel around. And for instance, you know, when you go to where you are in Asia and you just see the spectacular dynamism um, being put forward, which just doesn't sit really with a lot of the received opinion um, over here where I am, you know, back in the UK. Mm, exactly. I mean, it was, it felt like, you know, before coronavirus hit the UK, um, everyone was obsessed with, you know, um, navigating Brexit. And then overnight, everyone became, you know, this armchair epidemiologist. 
um, and everyone now <laughs> yeah. in on when the um, Arnold will come about. I mean, it, it's just bizarre the the sort of you know the armchair spectators um, that take part in in trying to run the country in the UK when you know it would just be probably a lot easier if you just left someone more competent in charge and and you know uh, <laughs> especially during these times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, and the UK has been absolutely sort of, uh, yeah, uh, not overly superb in terms of um, when one ranks it against other countries' um, um, sort of outputs, you say. Okay, well, as we begin to finish off, and it's been super interesting, and thanks so much, Nicole. Just in terms of um, where things go on from here, I mean, certainly I've been hanging the, this whole podcast series and writings around it around three key points um, uh, hope, community, and resilience uh, in terms of being a positive positive way forward after covid just be very interested in your take on that and feel free to disagree totally but you know um as three key terms hope community and resilience i mean do you think they are key or frankly not or something I, else i think you're absolutely spot on um i think they're absolutely the three key words and um and actually thank god <laughs> <laughs> no i mean you know uh when when i was uh, as i said earlier when i was you know um interviewing uh, the CEO of, of, of Food Panda, those words, hope and community, actually came up time and time again. You know, this idea that uh, we were, had this, you know, huge sort of uh, global world and everything was think global, but now it's really about thinking a lot smaller. How do we um, not just appeal to who's, whoever's in our own country, but how do we appeal to those local communities, shops, businesses, services? You know, we've all made sort of uh, mental lists on, um, you know, the, the, the company that we want to help out when this is all done or as, as we're getting through it. And um, so community has never been more important. I mean, we need hope. I mean, that's probably why, you know, Captain Tom Moore became this huge um, sort of star. You know, it kind of took this uh, phenomenal man who basically embodies, you know, optimism and, and his qualities and values would kind of symbolize everyone or everything which is resourceful, courageous and just plain good. I mean, you know, for, I, he became this sort of symbol of hope during a time when I think leaders um, in, in a lot of countries failed. Um, and, um, you know, and there was this guy, you know, this sort of former military man pottering up and down his garden, you know, with his walker, um, you know, sort of almost straight out of central casting, if you had to think of what an old British man looked like. But he managed to touch a nerve, you know, um, throughout the world. Um, maybe it was, a, you know, the pathos of it all. But, you know, um, it was sort of uh, a, a glimmer of hope while, you know, that kind of ever you know, those, uh, the, the infection rates, the death tolls were just kind of going up on, you know, what has effectively become plague TV. And so, uh, and then it's also just, you know, this idea that we can get through this. If this old man can potter up and down his garden and, and you know, and um, uh, help, uh, you know, get, you know, make 30 million pounds off the back of it, then there is resilience, you know, there is something in this. So, yeah, I, I'm all for those keywords for sure. Mm. And so, and so he he made the uh, made the news over there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he's a bit of a global superstar. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, I know what an amazingly inspiring figure he is. Just absolutely superb. Um, okay, then. So, what about you personally, then? Without giving any way, sort of any company secrets, but um, in terms of, um, I mean, when you're actually a are allowed back into Singapore, but um, in terms of uh, sort of attitudes towards sort of things like you know research going forward consultancy um are there any sort of ways that you that uh, you're you're adapting to 
to where we are now to as i put it you know the new abnormal in terms of you know methodologies of work yeah i mean we sort of uh we when i was in japan um there was uh you know the lehman crisis or the the global financial crisis in 2000 eight and uh, we'd set up the business a couple of years before that we were kind of roaring ahead and all of a sudden we weren't um, so that was kind of a, a bit of a shocker to deal with and then in 2011 was obviously the Fukushima disaster you know the um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, disaster, uh, the earthquake the tsunami and then the um, you know nuclear fallout after that and business stopped a second time so um, at that point I thought well you know this is this is twice that's happened so at that point I realized that nothing is certain apart from change and uh, yeah. pretty much moved into a, a very you know uh, low cost model which um, you know is sort of work with the smartest people we can but don't necessarily employ them on a full-time basis um, just work with talent who you know want to work in their own way and um, and just cut back on things like offices and you know and back then that was actually quite a bold decision especially in Asia where you know it's all about where your office was at that point so um, you know I remember having conversations with clients where I was really embarrassed to say listen you know a lot of my staff um, work from home they um, you know they're the kind of people who work to agencies but no longer want to um, kind of live that lifestyle and and if they decide to work from five o'clock at night till three in the morning that's their choice I you know I'm not telling people um, how they should work as long as they get their job done I'm fine so we just sort of you know um, after those you know those issues realize that you kind of have to um, run a business in a kind of crisis in a crisis management way and so as we went into this um, you know, we've got money set aside for a you know rainy day which is it's going to be for some foreseeable time. And really starting that sort of, and it's such a cliche, but, you know, the digital transformation, you know, what can we do um, online um, that doesn't just involve, you know, humans standing in front of whiteboards the whole time. So that sort of started a couple of years ago as well. Going forward, you know, it's hard to know. um, I mean, you know, to get a seat at the table nowadays, everyone has to talk about, you know, what AI they have or, or what differentiates them. And I just think that will become even more um, prevalent going forward. So really, you know, for us, it's just kind of keeping our head down until I think this is going to be like this until the re- end of the year. And then from there, really just trying to understand what value can we bring um, to what we do, but, you know, using methodologies or tools which, um, you know, can be qualified and allow us that seat at the table with the big boys, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, amazingly put. Uh, not surprisingly. Um, well, and by the way, Nicole, just so um, uh, everyone is utterly crystal clear about how to uh, uh, track you down and, and get in contact with you, um, Pat, just give us a bit of uh, info on that. Yeah, sure. They can go to asianconsumerintelligence.com or even 5by50.com, which is um, you know, very confusingly, we have two brand names. It confuses me. It confuses our clients. I don't really know uh, why we do that. But there you go. So um, people can find us um, either through the um, the products that we put out on AsianConsumerIntelligence.com or through the actual consultancy, which is 5 by 50 um, We love brands. So that's uh, that's why we have two websites. So you can find us there. Okay. And by the way, I remember um, years ago when when you launched 5 by 50 and there's a lot of media around it at the time because it's such a fantastic idea. But just again, anyone who isn't aware, just remind us what, why you called it 5 by 50 
Yeah, so I mean, as futurists or for you know forecasters, we're really trying to look forward. Um, and we came up with a name that uh, five by fifty stood for. There will be five billion people in Asia by twenty fifty. So that's where the name came from. And then Asian consumer intelligence really was um, came about through. Uh, being a platform of where we put our um, knowledge or our, you know, our content focused on the future. So that's it was really just to kind of differentiate um, those areas. But yeah, that's us. Okay, well, look, well, Nicole, that's absolutely superb. Thank you so much for talking with me. Um, uh, we covered a lot of ground there from uh, everything from, you know, starting with the basic points around the uh, realities around a sort of BCAC as in before COVID, after COVID world. And we move through the whole issues around in adversity, one finds amazing creativity. Um, and um, uh, one of the uh, one of the sets of uh, personalities that have come out of this very badly have been the celebrities, where certain brands have done incredibly well, as have certain governments. That issue about, you know, great leadership versus not such great leadership. Um thought your interesting really fascinating point around you know nothing is certain apart from change which used to be a bit of a cliche but wow has ever this current situation proved that to be totally the case um and all the rest of it so um nicole uh fall thank you very much thanks sean thanks for listening to the new abnormal podcast we hope you enjoyed it please leave a rating tell your friends and until next time goodbye Thank you.